I'll invite you to turn to one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the Bible. You know just where I'm going, don't you? No, that could be about a thousand different ones. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 tells us the story of the centurion's servant who was healed. Let's start reading in verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Now, let me stop there and and make a comment. Uh, Luke, I think it's Luke chapter 7, gives us an account of this. And uh, and Luke goes into some details that uh, that Matthew does not. Luke tells us that the centurion never talked to Jesus. That first the centurion sent the elders, the Jewish leaders, in other words, to Jesus to beseech him on behalf of his servant that he would come to his house and heal him or that, that he would heal his servant. That's really all he said, that he would heal his servant. And uh, and the Jews talked to Jesus about, look at the... the uh, uh, he's been a great contributor to the, the synagogue here in Capernaum, and he's worthy of doing that. You know, the blessing of Abraham. Part of what God said to Abraham is, I'll bless those that bless you. So even though the centurion is not uh, a Jewish, um, a member of the Jewish race, even though the centurion is not a part of the uh, the, the lineage of Abraham, and therefore the healing of his servant would not be applicable to him or belong to him at this point in time, at the point in time that, uh, that this happens. Um, Jesus blesses him because of the blessing he's given unto the people of God. So he goes toward his house, and when the centurion hears about him coming toward his house, that's when the centurion then sent friends. He didn't go himself. He sent friends and said, no, 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 that's not what we. That's not what I meant here. I didn't mean for you to come to my house. I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. And Jesus spoke to two different representatives of the centurion rather than the centurion himself, uh, according to, to Luke's account. So please understand that when it says Jesus is talking to the centurion, it's talking to his representatives, those that are representing the centurion to Jesus on behalf of the servant. So we'll start again in verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion to beseech him, first the elders, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. Luke says he did go. But then on the way... The centurion hears that he's coming. Somebody must have gone ahead to tell him what was going on. And the centurion sent friends out in front and said in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority. Having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have no, not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. A couple of different times you find in the, in the scriptures that Jesus marveled at people. One time in Mark chapter 6, he marveled at the unbelief of Nazareth. A couple of times Jesus marvels because of people's faith. I don't know about you, but I'd like to be strong enough in faith that Jesus marvels at my ability to believe or willingness to believe. Clearly it's possible. Jesus marveled at his faith and said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to see here. First of all, uh, Jesus commends this guy as having strong faith. There are three different occasions where Jesus commends somebody of, uh, for their strength, though, that the Bible speaks of uh, uh, the commendation, God's commendation upon somebody for their great faith. One was this guy in, Mark, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, the centurion. The other was the Syrophoenician woman that uh, obtained healing on behalf of her daughter. Woman, great is your faith, be it unto you even as you will. And the third one the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 4, 
where it speaks of Abraham being great in faith, being strong in faith. They're talking about great faith. Now, there are characteristics of each of these in each of these stories that are identified as strong faith. The uh, Syrophoenician woman wouldn't give up. She wouldn't take no for an answer. That's what made her faith great. Real Bible faith, strong, great faith keeps going regardless of the obstacles or the circumstances. It won't take no for an answer. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Once you've got the word of God, you have the revealed will of God or you have the will of God revealed to you. The word of God is the will of God revealed. So once you find a foundation for faith, whether it be healing or anything else, there is no reason other than just giving up that any person should ever have to take no or consider taking no for an answer because the word of God already says yes. So if we don't receive what the Bible says is ours, it's uh, it's our fault. It's our doing. It's not God's doing. The word of God that produces faith to receive already said yes. That's why it's so important to confess the word, because by confessing the word, by saying what God's word says, you're agreeing with God and saying yes to whatever the blessing is. Well, Abraham's faith, Abraham was strong in faith or great in faith. He's the father of faith. His strength of faith had two characteristics. One was he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform, even though it took a long, long time. And even though he was dealing with impossible circumstances. And then secondly, it says he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. He praised God for the answer before he saw it. In other words, he believed in something that he couldn't see and acted on it. And that action was praise. He thanked God for the answer before he ever saw it. This individual is credited as having strong faith because of his understanding of the authority of the word of God. The authority of the word of God. You know, it's one thing. You remember, for example, in the story of uh, uh, Naaman, the leper. The Bible talks about how that there was a Syrian captain named Naaman who had leprosy. And in, in some of their conquests, he had obtained a little Jewish girl that was operating as a slave or a servant in his house. And when the leprosy was discovered, it was a, it was a dreaded disease. There was no cure for it. It was a terrible thing. And because he was a man of great importance and great stature in, in uh, the king's army, um, it was of, of great concern even to the king. And so he had tried all the different kinds of things, and he was agonizing about what are we going to do now? There's no hope, and so on and so forth. And finally, the little Jewish slave girl spoke up and said, well, master, if you were over in Israel, you could get the prophet to heal you. I mean, just that simple. Healing belongs to us. We may not be good at fighting off our enemies, and that's why I'm a slave, but healing is ours. So if you were over in Israel... You could just ask the prophet for healing. So Syria, the Naaman, the Syrian captain, goes to the king and says, I've got a little slave girl that says I can get healed by the prophet over in Israel. So the king says, sends word to the king of Israel and says, I'm sending one of my best guys down there. Make sure he gets to the prophet and he gets healed. The king of Israel hears this, gets the message and hears this and starts tearing his clothes and saying, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do now? Who am I to see that this guy gets healed? This little servant girl, this little slave girl has gotten us all in trouble. This is some trap that this Syrian king is setting me up for so that when this king, when the Naaman, the captain of the army doesn't get healed, he'll attack me and take take us over and conquer us again. But they find the prophet. They find Elisha. Now, Elisha is sitting in his house and Naaman, the Syrian captain, big guy, 
big, important guy. Comes with a big entourage, lots of gifts. See, I mean, he's going to do it right. That's what important people do, you know. They make a big splash about it everywhere they go. Got to have people going in front saying, I'm coming. So that the press is there when they get there for just the right photo. So he comes to where Elisha is. And somebody goes in and tells him. There's a big important Syrian captain out here that's got leprosy and he wants to get healed. Elisha didn't even go to him. He says, well, go tell him to dip seven times in the river Jordan and he'll come again clean. Well, Naaman the Syrian, who's a real important guy, gets real upset because Elisha wouldn't come out to see him. Now, you know the end of the story. The, the servants that go with him say, Master, now calm down. You know, he, he starts complaining. He says, are not the, the rivers of Damascus, the rivers far, far, even better than all the, the dirty rivers of Jordan, you know, and, and if I'm just dipping in water, why didn't I just stay home and dip? This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. It rarely comes the way you expect it to, does it? The things of God rarely come the way that we plan them out. Because the way we plan them out is a big splash because we're important. Big splash, lightning flash. Everybody sees that God has given us something. Hardly ever works that way. Finally, the servants talk him into it and say, well, master, look, if, if he'd asked you to do a hard thing, you would have accepted that there would have been something to that and you'd have done that. Right? What's it going to hurt? You come all this way, just do it. Well, he does it, comes again, the leprosy is cleansed from his body, and now he couldn't care less how it happened. He's just happy to get it. Now, if Naaman the Syrian is an important guy, and he got mad because the big chief, Elisha, the prophet, didn't come out and give him a personal audience, look at the situation here where the centurion, big important guy, captain of a hundred, Hundred soldiers. Big important guy sends representatives to Jesus instead of coming himself. And that doesn't put Jesus off one bit. You know why? Because Jesus understands the Bible truth. And that is a representative, someone who is sent in the name of the individual, has the same standing as the individual himself. Now, here's why that's important. You are sent in the name of Jesus which means you have the same standing before God and before the devil as Jesus himself. You are instructed to pray in the name of Jesus, which means you have the same standing in prayer that Jesus himself has. Everything you do in the name of Jesus gives you the same standing as if Jesus was doing it personally. And that's part of what the centurion understands about the authority of the word. He understands the authority of a representative, he knows if he sends a servant in his name, it's the same as, as him being there. He knows if he sends the elders in his name, it's the same as him being there. He knows when he sends his friends out saying, I'm not worthy that you should come to my house. Not necessary. He knows it's the same as him being there himself. And Jesus knows that too. And Jesus didn't put off one little bit. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, this guy may be worthy of help, but what is he doing sending you guys instead of coming himself? When Jesus hears this man say, through his representatives, there's no need to come to my house. Speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. I like the fact that he described why he said that. If he had just stopped there and said, speak the word only, and my servant will be healed, Jesus would have said exactly the same thing. Verily, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Israel, the Jews, don't operate this way. 
And he's got all the Jewish leaders from Capernaum standing around when he says that. These guys sure don't operate like that. I haven't found anybody in Israel that operates that way. Well, who better to know how to operate than the children of Abraham? Abraham is the father of faith. He's the one that the Jews taught. Here's Abraham's faith in action. Yet Jesus couldn't find any Jewish individual that he refers to here, at least. He may be speaking just generally. He may not. uh, Well, at this point in time, he hasn't found the Syrophoenician woman. So she wouldn't she certainly wouldn't be included in this. But she was outside the Jewish race, too. You can't find one person, you can't find one Jewish individual in the ministry of Jesus where Jesus marveled because of something they did that was great. You find him marveling at some of the stupid things that they did. Some of the positions they took that were contrary to the word and contrary to their own well-being. Like in Nazareth in Mark chapter 6. But the centurion says, speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. But then he describes how he knows. I love this. He said, because I'm a man under authority. In other words, he's saying, literally, I understand how authority works. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed because I understand how authority works. Do you? Do you really? If you do, then speaking the word only is sufficient for you too. I have so many people, probably, uh, certainly the majority of people that come to healing school and, and approach me personally. It may not be everybody's attitude, but the people that pro- approach me personally, far, far and away the majority. I wouldn't know how to put a number to it, but certainly the majority, more than half, want me to do something personally for them. They either want me to pray or they want me to anoint them with oil. They want me to agree with them. They want me to do something personally. And sometimes it's right after a service where we've just made a confession of what the Word of God says about our healing just in a matter of moments before. But see, there's always got to be something else, or oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes there has to be in the minds of people something else to do. Well, folks, can I ask you a question? Is there anybody on the planet, much less in this room, but is there anybody on the planet that thinks that I have more power personally than the Word of God has? Is there anybody on the face of the earth that has more power than is contained in the Word of God? I don't care what they're called to. I don't care what they're anointed to do. I don't care what kind of signs and wonders and miracles operate through them. There is nobody that's got more power than the Word of God. But why do we exalt people? Why do we exalt methods? Why do we exalt anointing oil? Which is what a lot of people do. They think the power is in the oil. Oil has nothing to do with it. Oil is just a sign that we've been separated unto God. Physically as well as spiritually. In other words, it's a sign that Jesus paid the price for our physical well-being as much as he paid the price to set us free spiritually. To make our spirits new. That's all the anointing oil represents. But people put such an, uh, an attachment, such an importance on methods and people and things. Instead of the one thing that is their answer, and that's the word. And that's the story behind this, in my opinion. Jesus said, speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. He does not say, speak the word and let's see what happens. Which is what a lot of people are doing when they want you to pray. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed because I understand authority. I understand how authority works. When I speak, my servants do exactly what I tell them to do. I don't have to go behind them and check. 
they know that they are bound to do what I tell them to do. In the same way, you have authority over sickness. So say the word, speak the word, and my servant shall be healed. And my servant shall be healed. Jesus said, verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now, Jesus really cuts through the heart of the Jewish people here when he says, goes further. Verse 11, he said, and I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What he's saying is, and the Gentiles will get it before the Jews do. The Gentiles like the centurion. Who's a good example? People will come from the east and the west, from all four corners of the earth. And through me, through the accepting my sacrifice, which he's here on the earth to do, to perform, through accepting my sacrifice, they shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the Jewish people who are Jews physically. And the children, the seed of Abraham, the literal descendants of Abraham, to whom the blessing was given or intended because they reject me, they'll be cast out into the outer darkness. Now, I don't think that the Jews had any idea of the, the fullness of what he was saying. But they knew, he, they knew that he was talking against them. No way you can misinterpret that children of the kingdom being cast out into the outer darkness. They may not understand the rest of it. What do you mean people coming from the east and west and sitting down and, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That's contrary to anything and everything pertaining to the law of Moses. But there's no way for them to miss that children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. Can't miss that. No mention is made of their reaction to it. Jesus then says to the centurion, literally to his friends that were sent out as the second company to represent him. Jesus said unto the centurion, go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Now, there are facts that are in the Bible that sometimes the devil uses to against us. This is one, in my opinion. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. It's so easy, so, so easy to say, if you believe in the word of God and if you believe in the authority of the word like the centurion did, you'll get your healing in an hour or two. And if you don't, then you must not be where he is. And folks, you need to understand something. The issue, the natural issue concerning the subject of faith is time. It's always time. Questions that I get about the subject of faith. 99.99% of the questions have to do with when. When. And usually it comes out something like this. Well, Pastor Mike, I prayed the prayer of faith and nothing happened. The, what they're really saying is the time didn't fit what I was expecting. Or I'll have questions like, why isn't my faith working? And I'll always ask, how do you know it's not? I mean, other than the fact that they just said it's not, how do you know that it's not working? Well, I prayed and nothing happened. That's an issue of time. Time is the only thing the devil has to work against you when it comes to the subject of faith. Now, there's two ways you can approach this, and only two. There's only two ways you can approach the one and only one area, natural circumstance, that the devil will use against you when it comes to the subject of faith, and that's time. You can either make time your enemy, which the devil does and, and influences you to accept, or you can make time your friend. 
Those are your only options. Time is not neutral. It's either going to work for you or it's going to work against you. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? You can make time either be your friend or your enemy. To work for you or to work against you. And it's your choice. For example, if you take the position that I believe that I received my healing and then you wake up tomorrow morning to see how things are, you are operating in the area of time. You're allowing time to influence whether or not your prayer was effective. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 23, whosoever shall say unto this mountain and be thou, say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart for 30 minutes, but shall believe that whatsoever he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Anybody can hold out for 30 minutes. Wouldn't that be great? We'd have a clock that with an alarm on it that went off every 30 minutes and we'd be saying, yes, okay, yes, here's another one. All right. We'll take healing the first 30 minutes, prosperity the second 30 minutes, and after that we'll just play. That's what we do, isn't it? And it would develop an attitude on our part that God's like a drive-in window. That's just a little slower than we'd like it to be. Because all it takes is 30 minutes. Well, how long does it take? The fact that he didn't tell us how long to believe implies something, doesn't it? Doesn't that imply that you believe in your heart and not doubt in your heart? It starts a continuous action that never ends. Do you stop believing in healing when it manifests in your body? I hate to use the word manifest in, in connection with receiving healing or anything else. But that's what everybody relates to. Do you stop believing in healing when it shows up? Not me. It makes me appreciate God and his word even more. Because now I've added faith. Or I'm sorry, I've added ex- experience to my faith, as Paul said. Paul said, add experience to your faith. In other words, he's saying, hold out until you get the results so that that can build on your faith for next time. I don't stop believing in healing. Now, I don't have to believe for it in that sense because it's already come, but I believe in the word of God and the authority of the word of God and God's goodness in a greater measure than I did before the experience took place. We all work that way. That's why the stories of the the Old Testament heroes of faith are in the Bible. So that we can take those stories, those accounts of their faith in operation, use that as a springboard for ours because we've got a better covenant established upon better promises and build on that faith. Just like God did it for them, he's no respecter of persons, he'll do it for me in this area. We're taking their experience and building our faith on it with the word of God. That's how it works. So since it's not 30 minutes that you believe and not doubt in your heart, how long is it? For the centurion, it was an hour. He was healed in that self-same hour. So that means that within a 60-minute period of time, his servant was well. We don't know how long his servant had been sick, but everybody recognized the difference. Everybody knows things have changed. So how long do you believe? If the Lord told you, in your situation, you're going to have to believe for a month, would you agree to that? What if he told you in your situation it's going to take six months? Would you agree to that? What if he told you it's going to take a year? What if he told you it'd take longer than a year? 
What's your cutoff point? What point do you say, oh, no, that's too long, forget it? Now, folks, remember what I said. The devil uses time to influence you to try to make time your enemy. You're going to have to do something to keep time from being your enemy to keep it from being your enemy. It's going to take some active determination on your part to keep time from being your enemy. Here's what I found. And, and folks, let me tell you, if anybody is the poster child for things taking longer than they want them to take, it's me. I mean, I'm such a man of great faith and power. I preach the word all the time. I ought to get instant results, shouldn't I? That's the way some people think. And if I don't get instant results, it makes some people question what I'm preaching. Well, folks, don't believe because of my experience. Believe because God's word says so. If I fall dead and die of sickness, keep believing the word. And to the degree that I preach the word, you can hang on to that too. But stick with the word. I don't believe this because Uncle Charlie got healed. I don't believe in the word of healing because mama got healed. I believe in the word of God concerning healing because God's word says so and God can't lie. So whether somebody dies sick or not, my faith doesn't change because my faith's not in whether or not so-and-so died sick or didn't. My faith is in what God's word says that can never fail. So if nobody else on the planet gets healed, I'm believing it because God says it's mine. You just happen to be in a place where God sent me to, to tell about it. So how do you make time your, your friend? Well, you can look at tomorrow if things haven't changed in one of two ways. You can look at tomorrow as, well, it's not working yet. Or you can look at tomorrow as, praise God, I've got another day to confess his word. Because the Bible says the more you confess God's word, the more it becomes real in your heart. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to use every day to build myself up in faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Every day I confess, Christ has redeemed me from the curse of the law, being made a curse for me. So that the blessing of Abraham, including healing, might come on me as a Gentile and that, that I might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. That curse of the law that he's redeemed me from includes every sickness known or unknown to mankind. It includes incurable diseases, incurable conditions. That means I'm redeemed by the blood of Jesus from every incurable disease or every disease known or unknown to mankind. If they come up with a new one and I get it, no big deal. Jesus paid for it. Every day I confess that, it becomes more and more and more firmly rooted in my heart. I, I could tell you stories till sunrise. But let me tell you one to try to make the point. There was a um, uh, a situation where Brother Hagin was having a meeting. He was having a meeting. I think they'd gone for uh, six weeks in a certain church. And they were planning to uh, uh, close down the meeting. But at the end of the sixth week, and it was just a normal crusade, he said they had uh, 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 this was a long time ago. It was in a fairly small church. They'd have a couple of hundred people maybe at night uh, on, you know, big crowds. So it wasn't like an auditorium thing or anything like that. But uh, they had planned to go six weeks, and um, uh, and they were just about to close it. But the, the last night of the, it was a Sunday night that um, uh, that was the end of the 
planned time that they were going to have it. He said that, Brother Hagin t- said that, uh, um, the pastor just said, you know, he said it in front of everybody. Didn't talk to him beforehand or anything. Just said it in front of everybody. He said, you know, everybody, we were, we, we came tonight. Brother Hagin came expecting to close this meeting down. He said, I came expecting to close this meeting down. He said, but Brother Hagin, something, something just tells me to keep going. Can you keep going? Can you go another week? Brother Hagin said, yeah, well, yeah, I can make some calls tomorrow and rearrange what I had going on and where I was supposed to go next. Yeah, I can do that. So during the seventh week, the week that they extended, there was a lady that came to the service. And this lady that came to the service had a daughter who was, uh, I don't remember the, exactly the story. She was, uh, there was a mental issue involved. I don't know if she'd been declared legally insane or, or whatever it was, but there was a mental issue involved. And she had been to all the doctors. There was a, a, a lady of the community that um, uh, was of some means. Her family was of some means. I think it was the banker and his wife was the, were the parents. And, uh, and so they had the, the means whereby they could take her to the best doctors and the best hospitals and, and all this kind of stuff. And um, hadn't come for the whole six-week service. Didn't belong to that church. Didn't belong to the Pentecostal church. Didn't really believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost or anything like that. They were upstanding people, so, you know, you've got to be careful about going to the tongue-talking church. And uh, so they hadn't been there. And uh, during the week, toward the end of that seventh week, there was um, uh, uh, they brought this this daughter. And the daughter made all kinds of commotion, and during the service, they couldn't quiet her down. There was all kinds of things that were going on, and uh, and and it was really creating a stir. And Brother Hagen was, you know, Brother Hagen, you couldn't get him off. I mean, it didn't matter if you blew up a bomb next to him; he just kept preaching and let somebody else handle that. I mean, he was—that's just the way he was. You you forget trying to get his attention during the service. You could stand there and jump up and down and do jumping jacks trying to get his attention. He, he'd look right at you and wouldn't notice who you were because he was, he, he just focused on what God was giving him to do. So he, he said, it wasn't bothering me, but I could tell that it was bothering everybody else in the service. And he said that, you know, he'd get over here and he'd start preaching and all of a sudden she'd scream out. And then he'd get over here and he'd start preaching and all of a sudden she'd scream out. And sometimes she'd say dirty words. Well, in a lot of situations, that'll mess up a church meeting. And so there were different things like that taking place. And Brother Hagin said, I just, you know, I'm just preaching away, just minding my own business. He said, but before long, everybody in the service, instead of looking or listening to what's going on, everybody is watching this girl. And at that point in time, the Lord spoke to him and said, now, this is the reason that I had you stay the extra week. He said, go stand in front of her and say, come out, thou unclean spirit, and command it to go in my name. Brother Hagin walked down to where she was. She's sitting, you know, halfway back or something like that. Walked back as close as he could get to where she was, pointed at her and said, the Lord told me to command this unclean spirit. The unclean spirit, come out in the name of Jesus and leave this girl's body. Well, all of a sudden she convulsed. She went rigid, went stiff like she was having some kind of fit. And in a matter of seconds, she was free, talking to her mom like this hadn't happened. She had had this thing for like 10 or 12 years, talking to her mom like nothing had ever happened. Everybody in the church saw what happened. Everybody in town heard about it because it was the banker and his daughter. The banker got saved. His wife got saved. They got filled with the Holy Ghost, became a part of that church. Wound up being a great blessing to the church, helping them finance a new church and all this other kind of stuff. All kinds of blessings in town happened for them as a family and also for the church. But the important thing is the Lord said, this is the reason why I had you stay the extra week. 
when the pastor said it to Brother Hagin, he said, I already had it in my heart. I knew that we were supposed to. He said, but I'm, I can't tell the pastor we need to keep going. But when the pastor turned to me on the platform and said, I just feel like we need to go another week, he said, that, that bore witness with what I already had. I knew that that's what we were supposed to do. And he said this, and it really struck me when I heard him tell this. First time I heard it was I, I was in Bible school in uh, uh, healing school, son, uh, in a uh, midweek afternoon service when they had healing school. And Brother Hagin said, I've often wondered, what if we didn't go that extra week? What if we didn't go that extra week? Folks, I could tell you story after story after story where people had every opportunity to give up. It looked like I had come to the point. I could even tell you stories about where people got part of what they were believing for and they thought they were tempted to think, well, okay, I guess this is it. I guess it's not going to be exactly what I thought, but I guess this is it. But they refused to give up. And within a matter of a week or two, then the reality came. The fullness of what they were believing for came. The devil will use every opportunity to make you give up, whether it's to tell you it'll never happen or to give you half of what you believe for. Because either way, and I've done this, I have some experience with this. I settled for less than what I started off believing for once. And I hate it to this day. I accepted less than what I believed for. I settled for less than what I started believing for. And to this day, it, I, I won't even tell you the story. It makes me so mad to think about it because I realize that the devil stole it from me. I'll tell you somebody else's story about that, though. <laughs> Just to make the point. John Osteen, when he was pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, he used to have yearly missions conferences. He'd have missionaries from everywhere. They had uh, all kinds of things that they'd put people up in. They had barracks and, uh, uh, and just these, these almost a campground set up on their, their property. Not the property that where uh, Joel is preaching from now in downtown, but their old property. And, uh, and, and some of these barracks were, were pretty rotten. I mean, they were, they were well used, let's say. And, uh, and we'd go down there for, for conferences and stuff like that. And sometimes they'd put us in, in the barracks and sometimes we'd elect to stay on the bus instead. And, and I mean, it was, there was some, there were some different situations. Well, he would have these missionaries in, pay for them to come in, feed them, house them, pay for everything from, for people coming in all over the world. And he'd have like a thousand, sometimes 1200 missionaries come in from different parts of the world. I mean, he really had a heart for missions and missionaries and, and, and it cost a lot of money. Cost more money now to do it than it did back then, you know, 25, maybe 30 years ago. But it still costs a lot of money. So he would, he would confess. He said, Lord, the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to you. I need a cow. I want you to give me a cow. I'm believing for you to give me a cow. We're going to butcher this cow and use this cow to feed these people, feed these missionaries. So I'm believing God for a cow. Well, time keeps going by. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Brother Osteen is offered something that's half of what he wanted at a real good price. And he's thinking, well, time's short. We need to do something. You know, deadline's coming up. We don't get something done pretty soon, then we won't have time to do it. Here's a good opportunity. It's not what I was believing for, but it's a good opportunity. Okay, we'll just take it. So he said, I took it. He said, as soon as I agreed to do it, he said, something on the inside of me died. I know that feeling. He said, something on the inside of me died. He said, but I just kind of pushed it off and said, well, you know, the church can afford it. This is a good deal, so we'll just do this. He said he went to sleep that night, laid down, bothered him all afternoon. Laid down to go to sleep and had a big dream. And in this big dream, there was a giant snake. And he saw this snake come out of from behind a hill. 
He said he saw this hillside and he saw a, a, a herd of cattle up on top of the hill. He saw this snake come and he said as the snake came, he got bigger and bigger and bigger. The closer it got to him, the bigger it got. He said, I'm watching this thing. He said, I, I don't see myself in the dream, but it's like he comes right up to me. And it said, by the time it got right up to me, it was so big, bigger than anything you could ever imagine. He said, then it turned and went up the hill and ate one of those cows. And he said, immediately I woke up and the Lord said, you just let the devil eat your cows. Why? Time. Why did he do it? He meant well. He was sincere in what he was trying to do. Time became his enemy. Now, folks, there's another opportunity that's presented to you in a situation like that. You can say, you know, time's getting short. And I don't know how God can do it. But God is the God that's more than enough. And the shorter the time is, the bigger God's going to have to move. Choose to make time your friend. Time can be your friend when you focus on the word instead of time. Make time your friend. Let me close with this. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter 6. Making any sense? Galatians chapter 6. Notice it says in verse 9. Well, we'll back up and start in verse 7. It says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Everybody say shall. That means if you sow words of faith, you're going to reap the results of faith. It means if you sow or speak words of doubt, you're going to reap the results of doubt. You have what you say. And the way that the Bible says you sow is by your words. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. There's a lot of ways you can look at that. You can say if you sow to the Spirit, meaning confess Jesus as your Lord, it will result in eternal life. And that's true. But it's also true that anything you speak concerning God's word, any confession of God's word you speak, you are sowing to the spirit and you are bringing about everlasting or eternal life. Now, with that in mind, please remember that eternal life doesn't happen when you get to heaven. Eternal life is what you have now that made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. And that eternal life is not just forgiveness of sins, but because it includes the redemption of the spirit, the recreation of the human spirit, then the blessings of healing and prosperity belong to you because that's part of the package deal. It's kind of like somebody asked one time, said, well, if I get filled with the Holy Ghost, do I have to speak in tongues? Well, that's part of the package. But you don't have to speak in tongues. You get to speak in tongues. So if you sow sow to the flesh, you're of the flesh reap corruption. Let's talk about the flesh as being doubt. If you speak contrary to the word, then you'll reap the words that you speak, which are contrary to the blessings that are promised to you in the scripture. But if, on the other hand, you sow to the spirit, meaning, and Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit in their life. If you confess or speak God's word, you will reap the blessings or the benefits or those words that you speak, the promises of those Uh, the promises that God makes to you will become a reality in your life because that's part of eternal life. That's what he's saying. He's not talking about just getting saved. He's talking about faith and doubt. 
believing and doubting. He's talking about fleshly things versus spiritual things. He's talking about everything of the world versus the things of the Spirit. Be not deceived. God's not mocked. In other words, you can't say one thing and get another. That's what he's talking about. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For who that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. When? Time's the problem. When? Okay, we accept that, but when? If we speak the word, when will we get the results that we're saying? When? Verse 9, and let us not be weary in well-doing. Now, what do you think well-doing is, is referring to here? Do you think well-doing, he's talking about being, uh, being kind to the poor? Do you think he's talking about well-doing as being doing good works, going out and giving out tracts and stuff like that? Or do you think being well, doing well, do, being well-doing, not being weary in well-doing, do you think the well-doing refers back to the previous scripture that's talking about sowing to the flesh versus sowing to the spirit? We know which side God's on. He's on the side of sowing to the Spirit. So well-doing would be, and he that sows to, to the Spirit shall reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary. It's easy to get weary speaking God's Word. Why? Because of time. Because of delay. Proverbs 13, I think it's verse 12, says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You found that out to be true? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. When the, when the promise is delayed, it makes you heart sick. It's disappointing. It's frustrating. But when the desire comes, when that which you have spoken comes to pass, it is a tree of life. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. If you don't give up, what's going to make you give up? Getting tired because of delay. Now, can I ask you another question? Last question for the night. What is due season? Wouldn't it be great if due season meant 30 minutes from now? But what does due season mean? If you look up the words, season means time. Due means personal. Let us not be weary in well-doing. For in the time that is right for you in your situation, we shall reap if we faint not. Why does the devil delay? Why does he hold back? God's not holding back. The Bible says the devil is the God of this world. And he's the one that's working in circumstances, not God. He's the one that's bringing difficulties and hindrances and adversity to us. Why does the devil try to delay things? So that we'll get tired and give up. Why did God set it up so that it's not always an instant result? Or maybe we should say, why did God set it up so that it's rarely an instant result? He's the one that established faith as the principle whereby this stuff works. He could have set it up any way he wanted to. He could have made it a 30-minute believe and receive operation. Why didn't he? Because just as it's important for you to experience delay so that you have an opportunity to decide what do I really believe, not just what will I, am I willing to believe when I know that I can get the results quick. 
In the same way, it's important for you to recognize that it's God that causes your faith to come to pass. Jesus is both the author and the finisher of your faith. If you got instant results every time you prayed, you wouldn't look to Jesus for anything. You wouldn't consider Jesus to have any place in the operation whatsoever. And the quicker the results we got, we'd get to thinking, look at what we did. You got a lot of people that do that now. You got a lot of people that are exalting their own faith because of what they receive. What's Jesus' part to play? Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith. Anybody can believe for a minute. Anybody can believe for a day. But who can believe for a month or six months or a year or longer? That's the person that's convinced. That's the person that is chosen to put the word of God first in their lives and stick with it no matter what. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be confessing the word when Jesus comes back. No matter what the circumstance is, whether my circumstance has changed or not, I'm going to be confessing the word when he comes back. He's not going to have any trouble finding me when he comes back. I'm going to be the one talking about the word. Make time your friend. Make every day an opportunity to speak God's word. Not for the purpose of getting the result, for the purpose of getting established more and more and more in the truth of his word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to believe it. To believe it and act on it, to confess it, to hold fast. You said, Father, that it's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. Father, we choose to make time our friend. We choose not to look at how long something is taking, but instead to look at the truth of your word. Thank you, Father, that us receiving is your problem. Us having that which we believe for is your problem. And you never fail to hold up your end. Therefore, we simply declare that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, from all sickness and all disease, known or unknown to man, what man considers curable or what man considers to be incurable. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for making that a reality in our lives. That's beyond our ability. We trust in you, Lord Jesus. To bring it to pass. Thank you Lord. We thank you for the answer. We choose to be strong in faith. Giving glory to God. We thank you that we're healed. By the stripes of Jesus. We thank you for the authority. In the word of God. That authority that is expressed. By our words. Thank you Father. That there's nothing. No sickness. No disease. No work of the enemy. In any area, any phase of life that's greater than the power of the word of God. That's greater than the power of your word spoken by a believer. Oh, we thank you, Father, that healing is ours. In Jesus' precious name. Everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Try to be with us on Wednesday night. We're about to get into some really good stuff. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.